0: Volume 4, Chapter 6 of Clayhanger by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Volume 4, Chapter 6 The Rendezvous. In the afternoon the weather cleared somewhat. Edwin, vaguely blissful, but with nothing to occupy him save reflection, sat in the lounge drinking tea at a Moorish table. An old Jew who was likewise drinking tea at a Moorish table had engaged him in conversation, and was relating the history of a burglary in which he had lost from his flat in Bolton Street Piccadilly nineteen gold cigarette-cases and thirty-seven jewelled scarf-pins, tokens of esteem and regard offered to him by friends and colleagues at various crises of his life. The lounge was crowded, but not with tea-drinkers. Despite the horrid dismalness of the morning, Hope had sent down from London trains full of people whose determination was to live and to see life in a grandiose manner. And all about the lounge of the Royal Sussex were groups of elegant youngish men and flaxen, uneasily stylish women, inviting the assistance of flattered waiters to decide what liqueurs they should have next. Edwin was humanly trying to publish in nonchalant gestures the scorn which he really felt for these nincompoops, but whose free expression was hindered by a layer of envy. The hall-porter appeared, and his eye ranged like a condor's over the field, until it discovered Edwin, whom he approached with a mien of joy, and handed to him a letter. Edwin took the letter with an air of custom, as if he was anxious to convince the company that his stay at the Royal Sausage was frequently punctuated by the arrival of special missives. "'Who brought this?' he asked. "'An oldish man, sir,' said the porter, and bowed and departed. The handwriting was hers.' probably the broker's man had offered to bring the letter in the short colloquy with him in the morning Edmund had liked the slattern coarse fellow the bailiff could not unauthorised accept cheques but his tone in suggesting an immediate visit to his employers had shown that he had bowels that he sympathised with the difficulties of careless tenants in a harsh world of landlords three before six o'clock it was quite dark he thought it a strange notion to fix a rendezvous at such an hour, on a day in autumn, in the open air. But perhaps she was very busy, doing servants' work in the preparation of her house for visitors. When he reached the pier gates at five minutes to six, they were closed, and the obscure vista of the pier as deserted as some northern pier in midwinter. Naturally it was closed. There was a notice prominently displayed that the pier would close that evening at dusk. What did she mean?' The truth was, he decided, that she lived in the clouds, ordering her existence by means of sudden and capricious decisions in which facts were neglected. And herein probably lay the explanation of her misfortunes. He was very philosophical, rather amused than disturbed, because her house was scarcely a stone's throw away. She could not escape him. He glanced up and down the lighted promenade and across the broad muddy road towards the opening of Preston Street. The crowds had disappeared. Only scattered groups and couples, and now and then a solitary, passed quickly in the gloom. The hotels were brilliant, and carriages with their flitting lamps were continually stopping in front of them. But the blackness of the shop fronts produced a sensation of melancholy proper to the day, even in Brighton. And the renewed sound of church bells intensified this arid melancholy. Suddenly he saw her, coming not across the road from Preston Street from the direction of Hove. He saw her before she saw him. Under the multiplicity of lamps her face was white and clear. He had a chance to read it. But he could read nothing in it, save her sadness, save that she had suffered. She seemed querulous, preoccupied, worried, and afflicted. She had the look of one who is never free from apprehension, Yet for him that look of hers had a quality unique, a quality that he had never found in another, but which he was completely unable to define. He wanted acutely to explain to himself what it was, and he could not. "'You are frightfully cruel,' she had said, and admitted that he had been. Yes, he had bullied her, her, who, he was convinced, had always been the victim. In spite of her vigorous individuality, she was destined to be a victim— He was sure that she had never deserved anything but sympathy and respect and affection. He was sure that she was the very incarnation of honesty. Possibly she was too honest for the actual world. Did not the Orgreaves worship her? And could he himself have been deceived in his estimate of her character? She recognised him only when she was close upon him. A faint, transient, wistful smile lightened her brooding face, pale and stern. Four. Oh, there you are, she exclaimed in her clear voice. Did I say six or five in my note? Six. I was afraid I had done when I came here at five and didn't find you. I'm so sorry. No, he said, I think I ought to be sorry. It's you've had the waiting to do. The, The pier's closed now. It was just closing at five, she answered. I ought to have known, but I didn't. The fact is, I scarcely ever go out. I remember once seeing the pier open at night, and I thought it was always open.' She shrugged her shoulders as if stopping a shiver. "'I hope you haven't caught cold,' he said. "'Suppose we walk along a bit?' They walked westwards in silence. He felt as though he were by the side of a stranger. So far was he from having pierced the secret of that face. As they approached one of the new glazed shelters, she said, "'Can't we sit down a moment? I—' I can't talk standing up. I I must sit down. They sat down, in an enclosed seat designed to hold four, and Edward could feel the wind on his calves, which stretched beyond the screened side of the structure. Odd people passed dimly to and fro in front of them, glanced at them with nonchalant curiosity, and glanced away. On the previous evening he had observed couples in those shelters, and had wondered what could be the circumstances or the preferences which led them to accept such a situation. Certainly he could not have dreamed that within twenty-four hours he would be sitting in one of them with her, by her appointment, at her request. He thrilled with excitement, with delicious anxieties. "'Janet told you that I was a widow?' Hilda began, gazing at the ferrule of her umbrella which gleamed on the ground. "'Yes.' Again she was surprising him. "'Well, we arranged you to tell everyone that, but I think you ought to know that I'm not.' "'No,' he murmured weakly, and in one small, unimportant region of his mind he reflected with astonishment upon the hesitating but convincing air with which Janet had lied to him. "'Janet!' "'After what you've done,' she paused, and went on with unblurred clearness, "'after what you've insisted on doing, I don't want there to be any misunderstanding. "'I'm not a widow. "'My husband's in prison. "'He'll be in prison for another six or seven years.' "'That's all I wanted to tell you.' "'I'm very sorry,' he breathed. "'I've no idea you had this trouble.' "'What could he say? "'What could anybody have said?' "'I ought to have told you at once,' she said. "'I ought to have told you last night.' Another pause. "'Then perhaps you wouldn't have come again this morning.' "'Yes, I should,' he asserted eagerly. "'If you're in a hole, you're in a hole. "'But what difference would it possibly make "'whether you were a widow or not?' "'Oh!' she said, the wife of a convict, you know. He felt that she was evading the point. She went on, It's a good thing my three old ladies don't know, anyhow. I'd no chance to tell you this morning. You were too much for me. I don't care whose wife you are, he muttered, as though to himself, as though resenting something said by someone who had gone away and left him.
1: If you're in a hole,
0: you're in a hole. She turned and looked at him. His eyes fell before hers. "'Well,' she said, "'I've told you. I must go. I haven't a moment. Good night.' She held out her hand. "'You don't want me to thank you a lot, do you?' "'That I don't,' he exclaimed. "'Good night. But I really must go.' He rose and gave his hand. The next instant she was gone. There was a deafening roar in his head. It was the complete destruction by earthquake of a city of dreams, a calamity which left nothing even to be desired. A tremendous silence reigned after the event. 5. On the following evening, when from the windows of the London to Manchester Express, he saw in the gloom the high-leaping flames of the blast furnaces that seemed to guard eternally the southern frontier of the five towns, he felt that he had been returned into daily reality out of an impossible world. Waiting for the loop-line train in the familiar tedium of night platform, staring at the bookstall, every item of which he knew by heart and despised, surrounded once more by local physiognomies, gestures and accent, he thought to himself, "'This is my lot, and if I get messing about it only shows what a damned fool I am!' He called himself a damned fool because Hilda had proved to have a husband." "'Because of that he condemned the whole expedition to Brighton as a piece of idiocy. "'His dejection was profound and bitter. "'At first, after Hilda had quitted him on the Sunday night, he had tried to be cheerful, "'had persuaded himself indeed that he was cheerful. "'But gradually his spirit had sunk, beaten and miserable. "'He had not called at Preston Street again. "'Pride forbade, and the terror of being misunderstood. "'And when he sat at his own table in his own drawing-room, and watched the calm and curious Maggie dispensing to him his elaborate tea-supper with slightly more fuss and slightly more devotion than usual, his thoughts, had they been somewhat less vague, might have been summed up thus. "'The right sort of woman don't get landed up at the wise of convicts. Can you imagine such a thing happening to Maggie, for instance? Or Janet?' And yet Janet was in the secret. This disturbed the flow of his reflections.' Hilda was too mysterious. Now she had half-disclosed yet another mystery. But what? Why was her husband a convict? Under what circumstances? For what crime? Where? Since when? He knew the answer to none of these questions. More deeply than ever was that woman embedded in enigmas. "'What's this parcel on the sideboard?' Maggie inquired. "'Oh, I I want you to send it in to Janet. It's from her particular friend, Mrs. Cannon.' "'Something for the kid, I believe. "'I ran across her in Brighton, and she asked me if I'd bring the parcel along.' "'The innocence of his manner was perfectly acted. "'He wondered that he could do it so well. "'But really there was no danger. "'Nobody in Bursley or in the world had the least suspicion of his past relations with Hilda. "'The only conceivable danger would have been in hiding the fact that he had met her in Brighton.' "'Of course,' said Maggie, mildly interested. "'I was forgetting she lived at Brighton.' "'Well?' And she put a few casual questions, to which Edwin casually replied. "'You look tired,' she said later. He astonished her by admitting that he was. According to all precedent, her statement ought to have drawn forth a quick contradiction. The sad image of Hilda would not be dismissed. He had to carry it about with him everywhere, and it was heavy enough to fatigue a stronger than Edwin Clayhanger.' The pathos of her situation overwhelmed him, argue as he might about the immunity of the bright sort of women from a certain sort of disaster. On the Tuesday he sent her a post-office order for twenty pounds. It rather more than made up the agreed sum of a hundred pounds. She returned it, saying she did not need it. Little fool, he said. He was not surprised. He was, however, very much surprised a few weeks later to receive from Hilda her own cheque for eighty pounds odd. More mystery. An absolutely incredible woman. Whence had she obtained that eighty pounds? Needless to say, she offered no explanation. He abandoned all conjecture, but he could not abandon the image. And first Auntie Hamps said, and then Clara, and then even Maggie admitted, that Ebin was sticking too close to business and needed a change, needed rousing. Auntie Hamps urged openly that a wife ought to be found for him. But in a few days the great talkers of the family, Auntie Hampson Clara, had grown accustomed to Edwin's state, and some new topic supervened. End of volume 4, chapter 6.